0: As we fight them on our knees in prayer to the God who saved us, who will fight on our behalf. Let's sing this morning.
1: the power of our God. You shine in the shadow. You win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. An almighty fortune. Stand against the power of our.
0: Come
1: song to rise to you when temptation comes my way when I cannot stand i fall on you Jesus show my hope and stay what I need Oh I write...
0: of the cross, God, that why should we even gain from you, God? God, you are our reward, Father. Your love shown for us in the cross, God, that you would send your only son to die on our behalf, to make a way back to you, God, knowing that there was no other way, knowing that we in and of ourselves could not live a life that demanded the perfection that you deserve, God. So you had your son come and live that life on our behalf, God, being obedient all the way to the cross. How deep your love for us, God. And Not only did you die for us, God, and redeem us and save us for the glory of your name, You don't leave us to ourselves after that, God. You redeem us, you save us, but then you fight on our behalf. God, you send us your helper. God, the Holy Spirit, as he leads us, sanctifies us, teaches us, God, makes us more like you, God. You are a God that fights for us. You are a God who loves us. We thank you. In your name, we pray. Amen.
2: Disciples of Christ is through what we call believers. Baptism. You've heard me say it before, but it's so important to remember there's nothing that saves us by being baptized. There's nothing magical about these waters. There aren't some blessed holy waters here. This is water out of Montgomery Tap, just like everything you have at home as well. But the whole point of baptism it is a symbol. It is a symbol. It is a profession of faith. It's the way a person shares with the watching world that I am a follower of Christ. Now, why do we do baptism the way we do it here? Because we believe there's a powerful symbol here. That when a person is baptized and they're pushed under the water, they're saying, I believe that Christ died for my Sins, as the scripture said. When they come out of the way, they're saying, I believe that Christ rose from the dead, defeating death and giving me newness of life. It's also a way a believer is saying to the world, I have died to my old way of life, and by God's grace, I'm new. I am different because of Christ and me. So, this is a way one pronounces their faith in Christ. Also, a symbol for the church to say that we affirm what God is doing in your life, that we see God's grace at work in your life, and we are celebrating it as your church family. With you. So, with that in view, we want you to hear from Slayton Edwards, get to hear his testimony first of God's saving grace in his life. Slayton? Yeah, so I was baptized when I was
3: 12, but um, I didn't really know what I was getting into, I guess. I didn't really uh, believe. I was kind of just doing it because everyone around me was doing it. Um, And then throughout high school and the uh, first part of college, I I went through just a season of like a deep depression. And so that caused me to kind of uh, cope just with, like, the things of this world and, like, try to find pleasure in uh, the things of this world. But uh, the Lord saved me. And uh, since then, uh, it, lo- the Lord has really just, like, blessed my life and blessed, brought in, like, amazing people to just help me grow, like uh, C.J. Grady and Seth, who have uh, just helped me to know and help, uh, helped me to just, like, learn more about God and just like to fall in love with God and so now that's that's led me to where like I I know I, I can't do anything on my own like I need the Lord to save me so that's kind of brought me here.
2: Amen. We rejoice in that. And if you notice on his t-shirt, it says Sola Fide. That is from the time of the Reformation. It's the Latin expression that means faith alone, that we're saved just simply by putting our faith and trust in Christ. No amount of works will save us, as we'll see in our message later on today. Well, one thing I'd like to do before Slayton gets baptized, we want going to give a chance to, for a few of you who are his friends to share a word of encouragement of how God has been working in his life. And so I'm going to open up the floor. I'll hold the mic. And so um, i want to give a few people a chance to share. We're going to start with CJ. And you're on staff. You can hold the mic yourself, CJ. <laughs>
4: i'm normally the one walking around I'm just kidding um no i just want to say dude i'm so proud of you um i built a relationship more intimacy over the past few months uh, more than anything dude i just want to encourage you keep the hunger i see such a hunger for the lord and his word and wanting as we talked about in my office go deeper at the deep end of the pool you know i'm really getting to know who god is and i see a humility in you a teachable spirit in you and just continue to do that i'm so proud of you for this step it's a big deal and just really excited to continue to collaborate with you and partner with you on this journey and just love you, bro. I'm excited.
2: Thanks, CJ. Anyone else want to share a word of encouragement? Oh, I see some hands back up here. Okay. Ethan, stand up for us. Hey, Slayton. Um, I'm excited for you, man. Um, your faith and your commitment to the truth just floods my heart with joy. Um, As you walk in faith and bring hope to your community and friends by proclaiming the good news of Jesus, I hope you look back to this day for peace and strength um, when life is hard and uh, when you um, are beset with trials. Um, The beauty of what happens today, the image of a buried and resurrected life gives hope to our souls and brings joy to our hearts. Um, We know there's one body and one spirit. There's one hope in God that calls us, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Um, I'm so glad that you believe that truth and want to celebrate through baptism today. Um, may the Holy Spirit, who's begun a good work in you, direct and uphold you in the service of Christ in his kingdom. Thanks, Ethan. I saw Zach's hand up here. Hey, buddy. Uh, we're proud of you, and as the young adult group uh, who you've been in community with, we're excited, and we're praising the Lord through the experience that you're going through right now, and And we're excited to, to grow in this life, in this, in this experience, and this journey that you have um, going on with you right now, and, and we're, again, we're thankful for the for the lesson that we're able to learn through your experience today, and we're praising God for that. Amen. Thanks, Zach. Anyone else want to share a word of encouragement to Slayton before we give it back over to Seth? Oh, I see Bruno way back over here. Okay.
5: Here we go, Bruno. Uh, it's late, and I haven't got to meet you very well yet. I would love to get to know you more. I just want to let you know that your humility really encourages all of us. You saying that you need the Lord and that's such a gift for us as humans to acknowledge that. We so easily rely on our own strength and what you are doing here today just uh, reminds me. It's almost like a renewal for me because uh, about uh, 20 years ago I was there in your place. It was April 3rd, and Uh, two and I went through similar story I can relate with you growing up in church in Brazil I was baptized uh, young and later on the Lord gave me the opportunity through some college ministry young adult ministry here at Gateway to get to know him and uh, he saved me and uh, he has been continuing to have mercy and grace over me and, and sanctifying like he does with all of us. And uh, your story uh, just remind me of myself being there and uh, you know, going through the ups and downs of uh, college days and uh, uh, battling depression, uh, you know, relationships, and, 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 and the new seasons in life. So I just wanted to encourage you. Uh, Twenty years later, I'm here with my wife, whom I met here at Gateway, and I'm so thankful for what the Lord has done for me. I don't deserve. And I know he has great plans for you during the ups and downs in life and the next seasons that are coming up for you. Keep on looking to him, and he got you covered. Amen.
2: Amen. <laughs> Man, yes. Thanks, Bruno. Okay. If there's no one else, then oh, let's see one more over here. I give me a workout today going back and forth across the sanctuary. <laughs> So I've known Slayton for about four years,
0: and it's been incredible to see how much the Lord has worked in his life. Um, in the short amount of time that I've known Slayton, you're a great example of what it means to have a, a deep and personal relationship with God. And I'm proud to call you my friend, and I'm excited for you. So.
4: Amen.
2: Thanks for sharing that. Okay, Seth, we will turn it back over to you now.
3: Just to encourage you as well, Slayton. Um, you know you came through our college group, and you just consistently showed up. And like CJ said, you have always sought truth humbly, and um, that's what I love even about this process here. You went through a book with Preston Adams. He led you through kind of what is baptism. You really wanted to understand what it was before just saying, "Yeah, I want to do that." And so you seek the truth. You're seeking the Lord, and just want to encourage you with that. So love you, man. Let's uh, let's go ahead and baptize you. So. Slayton, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Yes. Based on your uh, confession of faith there, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
4: Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you so much for what we just experienced. God, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of why you came, and just to celebrate with Slayton. God, we continue to pray your blessing upon him as he begins this next step of his journey with you, and Lord, just the beauty of his confession, and just the life that we get to experience with him over these years. And we just thank you so much for his step of faith today. But we thank you for the opportunity to worship together as family and to offer these petitions and prayers up to you, God, knowing that you're good and just and holy and righteous and faithful, uh, that we offer these things up to a God who is trustworthy and good. And so, Lord, we first just thank you so much for our Gateway Kids ministry. We thank you for Molly Moore and her leadership. And, Lord, even starting this morning, we thank you for the opportunity to do VBS to begin these next few weeks with these kids. God, even as they're over there right now uh, doing different things with crafts and snacks and Bible lesson, God, we pray that you would just bring your word so clearly to these kids that um, some may be in there and hearing the gospel for the first time or maybe in a unique way through a Bible story or some other uh, moment one-on-one with a teacher. We pray, God, that we, some of these kids would experience salvation this week, God, that you would bring conviction, that you would bring them to a place of repentance, that they would place their faith and trust in you. And uh, for the teachers, God, give them wisdom and discernment um, as they bring your word this week. We ask you to just bless them and during this time each Sunday as your word comes forth. And Lord, we thank you for those in our church, in our body, all over the city who are ministering in different capacities. And Lord, this morning we lift up our brother Foch. We thank you, Lord, so much for his ministry to the guys continually at Safety Net. He's been so faithful there for so many years of discipling these young men, loving on them, just being Christ. And Lord, we pray you continue to bless him and his time with these guys. We pray again for salvation to come, for conviction, repentance to take place. Give Foch wisdom and discernment on what to say, when to say it, how to say it, everything, God, just as he's being salt and light to these young men in a situation where they need to experience your love, mercy, and grace. And we just thank you, Lord, for his faithfulness all these years. And Lord, we thank you that we get to pray for the extended family here in Montgomery, our brothers and sisters in Christ at other uh, fellowships. And Lord, we thank you for Pastor Adam Bishop and for our family over at Vaughn Forest Church. Lord, we just pray you bless them this morning um, as your Holy Spirit shows up there and and moves and brings wisdom and discernment and revelation. God, we pray you bless Adam this morning as he brings your word, that you would uh, just give him energy and strength and discernment as he shares. And Lord, for their congregation as they minister to many areas in this community, we pray you continue to give them wisdom and strategy and vision um, of taking the gospel to the nations and their community, whatever they're doing. We thank you for them. And Lord, we thank you that we can pray for the nations, and this morning, God, we cry out for your mercy and for your intervention for the nation of Haiti, Lord, for the unrest and things that are happening after the assassination of their president. Lord, that country, as sad as it is, has been going through so much over the past couple decades, and we just pray, God, for your intervention, for you to raise up your church, to raise up those men and women who know you in the Haitian community there to to bring intercession and prayer, and uh, if they're in areas of leadership and government, God, that you would give them wisdom and strategy and just anything they need, God, to give some stability to that nation, but more than anything, that you would receive honor and glory, that your name would be exalted in that nation. For Pastor Mark and for the staff of uh, the ministry that we partner with, Children's Hope, at times we pray for wisdom for them as well. Pray for resources and funds as COVID is spreading through that nation at a high rate and they have a lack of food, um, as we've already sent some funds down to help in this regard. We just pray, God, that your church um, would rise up and walk boldly and minister to those in the different regions of Haiti and give them wisdom on what they are to do and how to do it. And Lord, again, we thank you that we can pray uh, for specific individuals all around the world as we get information through the International Missions Board. And uh, Lord, this morning, we lift up a young lady named Betsy of the Tajik people in Afghanistan. Um, Lord, she's been exposed to the gospel many times through um, kind of the underground church and missionaries there in Afghanistan. Uh, She's been to college. She's now working in the community. She desires to pursue a law degree. But the prayer request, God, is that you would draw her to yourself, that you would um, just stir her heart to ask questions about spiritual things, the gospel, and that, God, you would save her, bring her to saving faith, because They brought her up, Lord, because she can have such an impact in this community, uh, with her family, with her job, pursuing this degree, um, that she would have great kingdom impact in her community of the Tajik people. We pray for your wisdom and guidance, protection of her, but God, we pray more than anything for conviction, that you would reveal yourself and bring her to a place of repentance. And Lord, we thank you again what you're doing here in our community. We thank you for Gateway and uh, the resources you've provided. We want to ask you, Lord, to bless the offering this morning for those that have given online or... Uh, those this morning, we thank you, thank you, thank you. You You're such a good God. We are so blessed, and we thank you for the opportunity to give back and for us to be able to use these resources for your kingdom. And Lord, for our pastor, we thank you for Grady, our shepherd. Uh, We pray this morning you give him energy and strength and wisdom and discernment as he brings your word forth. Lord, I know he studies so faithfully each week to bring us your word, to teach us and guide us um, through that. Holy Spirit, come as our teacher and speak to us this morning, and we give you honor, praise, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Of God's word, Romans chapter 3, my apologies for my voice this morning. You already heard that at the baptism time. I've been fighting off a mean sinus infection the last few weeks and. My voice has not recovered, but thankfully the power is in the Word of God and not in the strength of my voice this morning, and that is our hope for today. But find Romans chapter 3. We are continuing our journey and seeking to be rooted and grounded in the unchanging Word of God. And as we've been going through the study of being rooted in the Word of God for the last 20 weeks, we've seen so many foundational truths about what we believe and what God's Word teaches us about so many areas of our lives. These are truths that anchor us. These are truths that equip us to be able to help others. Now, for the past two months, we've kind of focused in on a section of this study. We've been looking at the law, the commandments of God. And we've been looking at that going all the way back to last May when we began the study of the law. We began in Matthew chapter 22 when Jesus was asked by a lawyer, a teacher of the law, what's the most important commandment? And that's so foundational. I want us to see that on the screen just to remind us of what we looked at. But Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, the teacher comes and says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Verse 37, he continues, And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first the great and first commandment, verse 39. He says and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now Jesus summarizes it all in verse 40, there he says on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. As we saw in that foundational week in looking at the law of God, the commandments of God, God's standard is incredibly high. God's standard with the law is perfect and perpetual obedience. That God requires perfect and perpetual obedience to all of His commands. From there then, we spend the last two months looking at the summary of the law in Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. We looked at the four commandments about how we relate to God. We looked at the six commandments about how we relate to one another. And if you're like me, studying the Ten Commandments these last two months has been so convicting because they're so much deeper than we realize. We look at things that we think are okay, like, oh, no idols, and we're like, good, I'm clear on that. And then we quickly realize how many things in our life we love more than we love God. We look at the command about do not steal and we think, I'm okay on that one. And then we realize that we can actually steal from God by not being generous to others. Things like we think we're okay, I'm like, hey, I haven't murdered anyone, I'm okay. And then we realize the depth of hatred and harm in our hearts towards others and thoughts that are wrong. So the Ten Commandments have been so convicting for us. And like by that, we come to the very next question as we're using the New City Catechism to guide us through our study. And that question this morning is simply this, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Now, one of our life groups this week was meeting as they were discussing last week's sermon on the Ten Commandments. They asked a small group leader of that particular group, hey, what's the next question in our study now that we're done with the Ten Commandments? And the leader shared this question, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? And the group immediately needed the answer, and that was, no, no one can. So it's a very simple, easy answer for us. So why are we devoting a whole sermon to a, a question that we really can answer with one word, no? Really for two reasons, friends. Number one, though you understand that we cannot keep the law of God perfectly, you understand it because of God's grace at work in your life and because of your commitment to Scripture. But the reason we need to focus on this is because this is widely misunderstood today. This is widely misunderstood. The perspective of our utter sinfulness The perspective of our inability to do good to get to God is not the dominant view today. We live in a culture, even where many who claim the name of Christ believe that we are basically good people on that. Um, While we were on vacation in Nashville last weekend, we were listening to a Christian comedian that our family really enjoys, and he likes to pick on church life a lot. And he was telling the story about a church nursery, and a little kid in the church nursery took a pair of scissors and stabbed his teacher in the leg with the scissors. Now, hopefully that would never happen in our nursery. But, you know, there's human nature, right? And, he's, and, he's, and in his joke, in this comedian's joke, he was talking about confronting the parents about what little Johnny did in the nursery and stabbing the teacher. And the parents said, oh, no, no, little Johnny can never do that. You know, it must be his allergies. It's just his allergies that's why he did it. He hasn't been breathing right, so he's not been acting like himself. Now, that gave us a fun laugh as a family in the car while we were driving, but it reveals a deeper heart issue that we as people tend to believe that we are basically good and our kids are basically good and our friends are basically good, our spouse is basically good, and we just tend to assume that people are basically good because we're fed a lie by the whole culture around us, that if you're doing wrong, it's really not your fault. It's your circumstances, it's your upbringing, it's things outside of your control. And we see the problem as being out there, and we have a tendency not to realize the problem is right in here in our own hearts. We have fed the lie constantly that you are basically good. And so many around us have bought into that lie. So we need to understand what God's Word says in terms of can we keep the law of God. But there's a second reason why this is so important for us to dig into this morning. Because how we answer this question determines where we seek hope and help. How we answer this question determines where we seek hope and help. If we're basically good people, then we're going to look to ourselves to grow and to get better. And friends, as you know, that's pretty empty and there's not going to be any hope there. But if we understand that we're not good and we cannot keep the law of God, it points us to where true help and true hope is found. So in light of all that, I want to dig into God's word this morning to find the answer from the Scripture, "Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? We're look at Romans chapter three verses 9 through 12. Can I ask you to stand, please in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Romans chapter three verses nine through 12. I'm reading out the English standard version. We'll also have the words on the screen for you. Verse nine. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your unchanging word. And Lord, as we look at a text that is not exactly a happy text or a feel-good text this morning, we know it's still so good for us because you've revealed it to us, and you've shown it to us. There's truth that we need, even in a harder, convicting text like this. So I pray that through your mercy and grace and the work of your Holy Spirit, you would let our eyes be open to the truth of your Word, and through your Holy Spirit working within us, God, that you would transform us and grow us where each of us need growth, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So here's our answer to the question. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Well, the short answer is no. Here's the longer answer for us this morning. No person is able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thoughts thoughts words, and actions. No person is able to keep the law of God perfectly. Instead of keeping perfectly, we consistently break God's law. We consistently break God's standards in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. Remember, God's standard is perfect and perpetual obedience. Day by day, moment by moment, we are to be obeying His law in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. And the reality is since sin has come in the world, no one can do that. And we break it constantly. I want us to dig in to understand this, this truth this morning. And so we're jumping from the Old Testament to the New Testament, so I want to make sure you understand where we are. We're now looking at the book of Romans. This is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to so the Christians in Rome around the year AD 57. And this particular book, the book of Romans, takes us deep into the gospel. By that, we mean the good news of salvation, because this book shows us how seriously God views sin. It also shows us how great God's mercy for sinners is towards us. What well, we come to this morning in, in chapter 3, verse 9, is really the end of a section, if you're all the way back to Romans chapter one, verse eighteen, Paul is building an argument. And Paul's flow of thought and argument goes from chapter one eighteen all the way to chapter three, verse twenty. It's all one flow of thought. And what Paul does in the first three chapters of Romans is he's showing us the reality of sin in the world. In chapter 1, he's focused on the sinfulness of the Gentiles, but that's all the non-Jews in the world. In chapter 2, he focuses on the sinfulness of the Jews. And in chapter 3, he wraps it up and shows us the sinfulness of all people, including us in this. And so as he concludes his argument here in verse 9, notice how he wraps up what he's been saying for three chapters in Romans. So go back to chapter 3, verse 9. He asks two questions to begin with. His first question is, what then? And what's he doing here? He's simply saying, I've said a lot over these three chapters about sin. What do we do with that? How do we conclude this? How do we summarize all that has been saying. But before he even answers that question, he gives a second question right there. He says, are we Jews any better off? Now, what does he mean? Because if you look back at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, do the Jews have an advantage? And he says, yes, the Jews have an advantage. They were given the law of God. Now, here we are a few verses later, and he says in, in verse 9, are the Jews better off? And he says, no, not at all. As he, what's Paul doing here? He's speaking here in terms of, do the Jews have any advantage in their standing before God? they have any advantage at the judgment day if they have not believed in Christ and they're lost in their sin? Will they have any advantage because they, ha- they were from the chosen people, because they were God's people, because they have been given the law? Do they have an advantage? And the answer is no, that no one is exempt from God's judgment for sin. Even if your ancestors had the amazing religious heritage, even if you were the Jewish people, you have no advantage in your standing before God when you are judged for your sin. And friends, I don't know where you guys are, but some people need to hear that. Because a lot of people, even in our context, base their hope of going to heaven on, hey, I grew up in the church, I live in the Bible Belt, my grandmother was a member of the church, my parents were in church, I was baptized in the church as a kid. And there's no transformation, there's no faith in their life, but they're putting their hope in the fact of their heritage. And friends, he says right here, there's no advantage to those things. Now, what do we conclude in light of all this? How does he answer both these questions? What then, and are the Jews better off? And he summarizes it all, everything he's been saying in the first three chapters, in the next phrase in verse 9. He says, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. If you want a summary of the first three chapters of Romans, there it is right there. That all people, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, friends, this is a massively significant phrase. We must not rush past it. We must not overlook it because this phrase is huge for understanding really the totality of the Bible. It's a central part of his argument here. Now, let's take this apart here, that all are under sin. Now, first of all, the word all in the Greek... The word all means all. Right? Yeah, not a real complicated one here. This word means all. That means there are no exceptions. So from the newest baby in the nursery back there this morning to the oldest senior adult here at Gaywood, to the person who's grown up in the Bible belt in the southeast, to the person who's in Cambodia, who's never heard the name of Jesus, all is all. It includes everyone of age, background, everyone is included. In this, And to make sure that he gets this point here, he highlights it with the greatest distinction of the time, Jew-Gentile, except for here he calls the Gentiles Greeks, which are part of the Gentiles. And he takes these two groups that hated each other, and were seen as polar opposites in so many ways. And he says, both Jews and Greeks, the most two different distinctions you can find, are all still in the same place. They are all still under sin. Unless we miss, he wants to make sure that we see all as all here. When you start looking at the words he uses, he uses words to help us see the totality of all this. Now you've heard me say before, when I start studying during the week, I'd like to do a diagram of the text because it helps me visualize it. And I want you to see it this week. So I think, Alexander, do you have that up there for the screen? Do you have that graphic? Do we not have it this week? Okay, I guess we know. Well, if you look down at your copy of God's Word then, just look down the, the left-hand column as it is, in it, starting in verse 10. After it says, all, but Jews and Greeks, notice the words that follow. None, no one, no one, all, no one, not even one. And you start going down the list here, and notice all the all's, no's, no one's. If you kind of put it in a diagram, you have this straight line of all these words that are unmistakable here, that he is talking about everyone who has ever lived on this planet. That everyone in the world, with no exception, has one thing shared in common, and that is, they are all under sin. Now, what does it mean to be under something? Now, to be under something means to be controlled by something. It's to be under the power or the rule of another. So, at the time, if you were under a king, you had to submit to the king whether or not you liked him or not. At the time, if you were under a master, you were a slave of that master. You did what the master commanded, whether or not you liked it or not. And so, what Paul is doing here is he's personifying sin, I realize that what he's doing, he's painting you a picture, he's describing sin in ways you describe earthly masters. He's saying if you're under sin, sin is like a cruel dictator over you. Sin is like a person who's enslaved you, who's ruling over you, who's taken away your freedom, and is controlling your life. And what's horrible about this image is this master, this dictator, is not someone outside you, it's inside of you. This cruel master that is controlling you is you are under sin is within yourself. It is your own sin nature that has you enslaved to rebellion against God, that has you enslaved to your own evil desires. He says, all are under sin. Now, there's four truths about being under sin that we must not miss to understand the force of what Paul is saying here. And I don't want you to miss these things. Number one, to be under sin, we need to realize that we are born this way. We are born under sin. Now, there's only been three people not born under sin, Adam and Eve. The very first people, and then Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, when He came as a baby. Apart from those three, everyone else who ever been born has been born under sin. Every single human who's ever lived, and every one of the 7.6 billion people alive on earth today, all 7.6 billion have in common that they were all born under sin, with a sin nature enslaved to their sin. For instance, that's why no parent has ever said I think my baby is perfect. I'm afraid they're going to get beat up in school. How can I teach them to be selfish? We don't have to do that because we were born with a sin nature. We come out as a child with a sin nature. And so sinful parents have to parent little sinners running around their house because we all have... Sin nature, as we all are born enslaved to sin. I love how King David highlights this for us in Psalm 51, verse 5. Now, Psalm 51 is David's confession. He's committed adultery, he's murdered someone, he's been confronted by the prophet, and he repents before God. In Psalm 51, if you need a model of repentance and confession, it is a great one to go to on this. And, and David says in there, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. It's another word for sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. Now, when he says, in sin did my mother conceive me, he's not saying he was born of an immoral relationship. He's going all the way back to when he was a person in his mother's womb. And he was saying that from the very beginning that I was conceived, I was a sinner. That I had a sin nature from the moment of conception. That when I became a person in my mother's womb, I was already a sinner. And so we need to understand that we are all born this way. We're all born under sin. Number two, though, we also need to realize to balance that, we also willingly choose sin. We also willingly choose sin. We make sinful choices to live our own way from the time we have been born. So one author I was reading this week said it this way. We're not innocent victims of sin. We are co-conspirators with sin against God. We are co-conspirators with sin against God. We choose to disobey. We have a sin nature that's enslaved us. But we're not over there going like, I don't want to sin. We're still wanting to, We still, our flesh still runs for it. Which is the very f- verse right before this in Psalm 51, Psalm 51, verse 4. I want you to see that one as well. Look at how David deals with this, sin. He says, against you, God, you only have I sinned. I have, I have done what is evil in your sight, so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. When David confesses, his sin, he doesn't say, God, I can't help it. I, 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 was, I was hopeless there. I didn't really want to, but I couldn't stop myself here. He says, against you, God, I have sinned. I have chosen to make things, to do things that dishonor you. So we are born into sin, but we also willingly choose sin. Number three, we need to understand that sin affects every part of our life. Sin affects every part of our life. There's no part of our being that is not affected by sin. Now, the theological term for this we use is the term total Depravity, total depravity. Now, this word is misunderstood. Today. Total depravity doesn't mean that we are as bad as we could be. Total depravity just simply means that every part of us is depraved. Every part of us has been tainted by sin. Now, I read an illustration this week that really helped me think about this in a new way. It was a seminary professor who said it this way He said, If the color of sin were blue, so just time out imposter, get the color blue in your mind. You can think about Greg's shirt over here, okay? Think of the color blue, okay? If the color of sin were blue, Every aspect of us would have some shade of blue. So, if the color of sin is blue, total depravity means that every part of us has some shade of blue. And now, there's not a part of you that doesn't have some blue. There's not a part that doesn't have, isn't tainted by sin, but every part of you has some shade of blue. Some parts of you may be darker shade of blue than others. And for other people you're around, they may have darker shades of blue in different areas. But every part of us has some shade of blue because every part of us is tainted by sin. We are totally depraved. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to describe for us in the verses that follow. This. We, we all are tainted by sin in every part of our life. Now, pick back up in verse 10 to see how Paul says this. And he starts with this phrase, as it is written. Now, before we get into what he says here, just a quick thing on the quote that follows. You see this long quote that follows in verses 10 through the end of verse 18. Now, if you go looking for this quote in the Bible, you won't find it. Okay, now, how is that possible? Paul said, as it is, as it is written, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he, he gives you a quote here, but it's not a quote that you'll find in the Scripture, because he's using something that the Jewish rabbis used. It's a type of argument called pearl stringing. Now, get an image of a piece of string, and you're putting pearls onto that string. What the Jewish rabbis often would do is they would take qu- lots of phrases from lots of quotes from antiquity, and they put them together to make a point. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's not quoting one place in the Scripture. He's quoting actually about eight different things to pearl string together this beautiful quote for us. He takes six phrases from the Psalms, one from Ecclesiastes and one from Isaiah, and strings them all together to make this pearl string, this beautiful image, to help us understand how sin affects every part of our lives, to how sin tanks every part of us, how all of our lives have some shade of blue, if blue is the color of Sin. Now, with that in view, look at this quote he uses for us here to show how sin affects our life. Start in verse 10, and go all the way down through verse 18, a little bit further than we read earlier. But just look at how our whole life is in view here. He says, As is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their path are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What is Paul showing us here? If you think back to what we said our answer was earlier, that we continually break God's law in our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And here in these verses, he shows how our sinfulness, our whole life, our words, our thoughts, and our actions are all tainted by sin. Look, he shows your thoughts are tainted by sin. Look back at verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. He's saying because of sin, no one really understands God for who He is. Because of sin, you don't even really understand how bad sin is. If we did, we would not run down that path. Our thoughts have been tainted by sin, and we're so easily deceived. It's not just our thoughts that are tainted. Our words are tainted by sin. Look at verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and Bitterness. That's so what we saw when we studied James two years ago, that our tongues, our mouths are so quickly tainted by sin and can bring such harm and such destruction in our words. But it's not just our thoughts that are tainted by sin, it's not just our words, but our actions are tainted by sin as well. When we do not do the good we're called to do. Look at verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And when he says worthless here, he means not fulfilling your purpose. That we are not doing the good God has called us to do. We're not living out our purpose to glorify God and to serve other people. He says, so our actions are tainted by sin when we do not do the good that we're supposed to do. But our actions are also tainted by sin when we do the things that harm others. Verse 15 to 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Every time we break peace with people, it doesn't have to be murder. It can be arguments and unkind words and all those things where our words tear down and our actions tear down. We've been tainted By sin. So you pull that together. Can anyone keep the law of God? No, we consistently are breaking it in thoughts, words, and actions. There's one more truth about being under sin we need to understand here, and that's number four our sin keeps us from God. Our sin keeps us from God. We've studied the attributes of God before, and we've seen that God is holy and perfect. And just because of God's holiness, the presence of sin cannot even be in his presence because he's so perfect and good. God cannot overlook sin. He cannot just be like a kind grandfather kind of winks at sin and ignores it. God is so holy. He has to punish sin. To not punish sin in his presence, he would cease to be God. And so the reality is our sin separates us from God because God is holy and we are so sinful. Therefore, God can make this declaration back in verse 10 of Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. Righteousness is standing before God. He says, no one can be righteous. No one can be in my presence because you're sinful and I'm righteous and I'm holy. So God can declare that we all stand guilty before him. And like we saw earlier, every single one of us starts out under sin. That means every single one of us starts out separated from God and standing guilty before a holy God. Now Paul explains this a little bit more when we get to the letter of Ephesians that we studied almost three years ago. But Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, I want you to see how he says it here. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins And when she once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now notice this in verse 3. Among whom we, how many once walked? How many? We all once walked this way. We all once walked in rebellion against God. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, we're born this way, by nature, children of what? Children of wrath. Okay, that's not something that we, see, we like to see in our devotions. That's not one of those verses that we like to hone in on. But the truth is, we are all born under sin. That means we are all born under the wrath of God, like the rest of mankind. Like the rest of the 7.6 billion people on earth, we stand on our own under the wrath of God because we have sinned. Our sin keeps us from God. So we go back to Romans 3, and it tells us that we are under sin that means we are born with a sin nature. That means we choose sin every day. That means the sin that we are born with and we choose tanks every part of us. It colors all parts of our lives. And that reality that sin is going to keep us from God. Therefore, Paul can then conclude. Go back to Romans chapter 3, verse 9. He can summarize everything with this phrase that all, both Jews and Greeks, all are under sin. And friends, that is a hard truth. That's not something that is fun to talk about. That's not a truth that we just like to ponder and think about. But friends, this truth is so good for us. This truth is good for us to ponder and remember and think about. One author, I was reading it this week. It made me pause. He said, this truth is hope-giving and life-producing. And I went, wait, wait, stop for just a minute there. When you think about what we've just said about the reality of our sinfulness and how our whole life is colored by sin and tainted by sin, how we struggle with sin and how we're under sin and we're under the wrath of God, he said, this truth is one that's actually hope-giving and life-producing. Now, how is that possible? Because this truth of the bad news, the hard news, comes with good news associated with it. And this painful diagnosis that we are under sin comes with the offer of a cure. It comes with the offer of... Of hope. For instance, we all know people have had awful medical diagnoses, and the doctors say, "I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do." We've just received an awful spiritual diagnosis. You're under sin, but the the one who gives the diagnosis is not saying, "But sorry, there's nothing that can be done about it." He gives the hope and the cure, and that's what all the message of Scripture is all about: the mercy and grace of God that rescues us from being under sin. We talk about mercy a lot. Mercy is when we do not get what we deserve. We just saw from Ephesians 2, 3 that we are under the wrath of God. And when God removes his wrath from us, we're receiving his mercy because we're not being treated as our sins deserve. But we also see in Scripture this thing we call grace. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. When God says, I forgive you, but more than that, I'm going to accept you. And you're going to belong. You're going to be seated at my table. You're going to be my child. And I'm going to pour out my love upon you. I'm going to give you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. I'm going to pour out grace upon grace upon grace in your life, friends. We're receiving not just not having wrath. We're getting so many blessings that we could never earn. And that comes out again in Ephesians. If you go back to Ephesians 2, 3, where we just read a minute ago, it says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then verse 4, here's where the hope comes, but God. Let's just pause there. There's no hope for us. We, like all the 7.6 billion people on the earth, are born with a sin in nature, born under the curse and the enslavement of sin, born choosing as well to rebel against God. Our whole life is tainted. By sin, we are separated from God. We have no hope on our own. But then verse 4 comes, but God, being rich in what? And mercy. mercy there, being rich in His mercy, not treating us like our sins Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ by, what's the next word? By grace you have been saved. There is his mercy and his grace doing for us what we could never do. And he clarifies for us then in verses 8 and 9 as he carries on. Sorry, in verse 6. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here we go. All that grace that we get and what we do not deserve. So in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now verse, here we go to the next verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is because you obeyed the law so well. This is not your own doing. It's a free gift of God. this is not a result of what? Not a result of anything we can do. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast friends. Our standing before God has absolutely nothing to do with the law here. If our hope to get to God is because I'm trying to obey the Ten Commandments so well, friends, we are hopeless, as we've seen over the last ten weeks. You and I break the Ten Commandments more than we realize in our heart and our affections and not doing all the things that we should be doing in light of those commands. Friends, we cannot obey the law to get to God. So Jesus came and obeyed the law that we break. In our words, thoughts, and actions, over and over, Jesus obeyed it all perfectly. In His words, in His thoughts, in His actions, He never once broke the law. So when He went to that cruel Roman cross, He was able to take all of our punishments. One who was a completely perfect sacrifice, and He could take our punishment. He could take the wrath of God that we deserve, because God's holiness, He doesn't overlook the sin. He puts it on Christ, and Christ bears it for us. But then we must not miss the other side of that. Not only is our sin put on Christ, but Christ's perfect holiness Christ's perfect record of righteousness is then applied to us. Look at Philippians chapter 3 verses 8 and 9. Paul wrote this in his will. And Philippians chapter 3 says, indeed I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now next verse, verse 9. It's about finding Christ and to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own that comes from what? the law. He's, Paul's saying, I can't do enough of the law to be righteous before God. The law means I'm guilty before God. So I do not have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, a righteousness, what? That comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Friends, when Christ died, not only was the wrath of God satisfied on him, but all of Christ's righteousness was put onto us. So when we approach the Father, he doesn't just see, oh, there's great or there's whoever who's struggling with their sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. So we can walk boldly into his presence because we're covered with the righteousness of Christ. As we put our faith in Christ, we now are seen as righteous. And friends, what do we do with that truth? How should the reality of being under sin, but now having a righteousness of our own that does not come from the law, how should that affect us? I'm going to suggest two things this morning. There's many more we can say, and we're going to explore more about the use of the law in the next two to three weeks. But two things this morning when we think about how should this truth transform us. Number one. This truth should fill us with wonder and joy. Friends, this truth should fill us with wonder and joy. Friends, do you realize that when you were still under sin, when you were still enslaved to your sin nature, and you were still living life, maybe not literally, but you're shaking your fist at God saying, not your way, God, but mine. When you were still doing that, God looked on you and chose you and loved you and gave you something that you could never earn. He set his affection on you when you were still in rebellion to him you go back to what we saw in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5. This is incredible. In Ephesians 2 5. Even when you, we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. He didn't wait for us to bring life to ourselves to then save us. We were dead and he set his affections on us when we were still spiritually dead. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 5 verse 8. This is another beautiful text for us, but Romans 5 but God shows his love for us in that after we're no longer sinners and obeying the law, well he, Christ then died for us. No, it's the exact opposite. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, we need to recover the awe and the wonder and the marveling of the fact that while we were lost in our sins, the sovereign God who could have justly condemned us to hell and justly punished us for all of our rebellion to Him chose to put His affections unto us, and love us, and give us mercy, and put all the wrath that we should experience onto Christ, and take all of Christ's godliness and righteousness, and put it on us, we need to marvel at the fact that we are recipients of such mercy and grace, and it should fill our lives with wonder and joy. But there's a second thing this truth should do to us as well. It should break our hearts for the lost around us. It should break our hearts for the lost around us. Many, if not most, of the world around us are still under sin. They're still enslaved to their sin. They're still choosing a rebellion against God. And God has sovereignly placed each of us around them, not to be conformed to them, not to be like them, not to get annoyed by them, which I think a lot of times we, we do. Friends, lost people are going to act like lost people. And God has put us around them, not so we can get annoyed and ticked off by their lostness, but for our hearts to break over their lostness and to realize that we're there to make Christ known. Like we read from Matthew earlier, that as we're to go, we're to be making disciples. So this truth should break our hearts. That's what it does for Paul. We've been reading in Romans this morning. if you look ahead to Romans chapter 9, verse 1, don't you see how this truth affects the Apostle Paul himself. In Romans 9.1, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now Romans 92, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, why does the Apostle Paul have great sorrow and unceasing anguish? The reason he has this is because he's thinking about the losses around him. Verse three, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh you hear what Paul's saying? He is so broken over the lostness of fellow Jews. He was once a Jew who's now a follower of Christ. He's so broken for the losses of the, his own people, the Jews. He says if it was even possible, it's not possible if It's possible for me to give up my salvation, me to go to hell so all my kinsmen could follow Christ and find the joy of knowing Christ, that I'd be willing to do that. For instance, it's not possible that you see his sorrow and his brokenness over the loss. These, these theological truths of total depravity for Paul were not just nice things for him to sit around in a coffee shop debating with his friends. These were things that broke his heart, not only gave him awe and wonder. You see all the things in Romans where he's just praising God for his greatness. He marvels at God's goodness expressed to him, and his heart breaks over the lostness around him. And when, when a hearts break for the lost, like Paul's does here, what, do, what should we do about it? Two things. Number one, we need to pray for the lost that God has put in our life. We need to pray for them. If you go to the very next chapter, Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and his prayer to God for them is they may be saved. Friends, what do we do when our hearts are burdened? We get in Romans 10 and 1, we pray for them, as Paul did. Because the reality is, is, all the texts we've looked at, we were dead, and God made us alive. We were far from God, and God draws us near. Friends, we cannot do that in someone's life. I can't twist someone's arm for them to become a Christian. I can't convince them of that. I can't make a dead person come alive. Only God can. Therefore, the starting place when our hearts are broken from loss, whether they're lost family members, lost friends, lost neighbors, lost coworkers, lost classmates, lost fellow employees, is we must pray them because we can't change them. Only God can change them. So we pray for them. But second of all, we need to love them enough to talk to them about Jesus. We need to love them enough to talk to them about Jesus. You may have heard the quote before preach the gospel and if necessary use words. Yeah, that, that's wrong. That's really wrong on so many friends. That's not Scripture. It may sound good and nice, cliche, but it's simply not true. There's nothing in Scripture that says preach the gospel, and if you have to, use your words. Friends, yes, we need to love people. Yes, we need to meet needs. Yes, we need to care for the whole person. But friends, if there's no words, there's no gospel witness. Romans chapter 10 as well, just a few verses later. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. I want you to see this. This is so clear in Paul's argument here. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, how they call on the name of the Lord? Verse 14, he tells us. How will they call on them in whom they've not believed? The answer is they can't. And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? The answer is they can't. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The answer is they can't. Now when you hear preaching, don't think of what I'm doing this morning. Don't think of what the missionaries do. Preaching is simply telling other people about Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, this is every one of your calling. This is not dealing with the office of pastor or missionary. This is talking about our calling to make Christ known. How can the lost around you hear Without someone telling them about Jesus. Then, verse 15, he concludes there. He says, And how are they to preach, share Jesus, unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach or share the good news. Friends, God has a sovereignly where He is so we can make Christ known to the lost around us. And we have to do both praying for them and sharing with them. The danger is some of us pray for the lost, but never get around to talking to them. And that doesn't work because we have a commission to do both. Some people talk to the lost a lot, but they don't really pray for them. And that misses as well because the power is not in our own words, but it's in the gospel and the Holy Spirit changing people. And if we're honest, some of us at times do, neither one of those. And so the truth of total depravity that we see here and how sin taints all of us not only should lead us to awe and wonder that we are recipients of mercy and grace, it should break our hearts for the lost around us. It leads us to pray for them and it leads us to talk to them. So let's bring all that back together this morning, friends. Our question, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? The answer is this, no person is able to keep the law of God perfectly. But we consistently break it in thoughts and words and actions. So, fellow believers, let that truth fill you with wonder that this is how we all were, but God, being rich in mercy, has made you alive in Christ. Let this lead you to a place of faithfulness and worship all this week. And let also lead you to have a new burden to pray for and share Christ with the lost that are in your life. That'd be remiss in saying there may be someone here, someone watching online. Who you've been trying to get to God, thinking that you are good, thinking that you have just if you do enough good works and you just get your act together that God will love you, friends. You can be free this morning from that. You'll never get to God on your own. He has come to you, and so we call you to put your faith into Him and to wake up to this beautiful truth: the Lord will rescue you from your sins if you call out to Him in faith. Would you pray with me, Father? We are grateful for your unchanging word. We're grateful for the hard things. These texts that don't make us feel good necessarily. These texts that are so hard to realize that we are all lost under sin apart from you. But Lord, our hearts are also full of thankfulness and gratitude that you being rich in mercy have made us alive in Christ. Lord, thank you for doing what we cannot do ourselves. Thank you for making way when we cannot get to you. You came to us and you've drawn us to yourself. And Lord, I pray this week for myself and these precious brothers and sisters that God, you would fill our hearts with awe and wonder Lord, the incredible salvation we've received, it would lead us to a place of wanting to know you more, the God who has rescued to lead us to a place of wanting to celebrate your grace at work in our lives. And Lord, I pray as well that you would burden our hearts afresh for the lost. Lord, it's so easy to get caught up in our life and enjoying all the blessings that we have in Christ. Lord, we confess it so often we can miss that you've given us here, you've put us here in your sovereign plan for such a time as this, to make Christ known. Help us be faithful this week as ambassadors who pray for and who seek to share the glorious news of Jesus with those around. Lord, I know there's some people here who have loved ones and friends that they have been burdened for and praying for for years and years and years for their salvation. Lord, I pray today that you would strengthen and encourage them to not grow weary in their witness, whether that they would not grow discouraged, that they haven't seen transformations in those people's lives. But Lord, they would press on in crying out to you to rescue and save that person who is so dear them. And Lord, I pray that even this week that you would open doors for each of us to make you known. That God, you'd open our eyes to see someone who you've put in our path who needs the hope of Christ that we have, but they have never experienced. Lord, would you not only give us eyes to see the opportunity, would you give us courage and boldness to open our mouths. Lord, you know so often whether it's fear of people or fear of what their reactions would be. Lord, we keep our mouths shut when you've called us to open them. Forgive us for those missed opportunities. I pray this week we wouldn't miss those opportunities. With your Holy Spirit dwelling with us, we not only see the opportunity, but we will find a supernatural boldness to talk to that loved one, talk to that neighbor, talk to that co-worker, talk to that friend about the only hope they can find. We pray you do great things in our lives and the lives of others as you seek to make yourself known for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our closing song, as we celebrate the grace we have in Christ. Before our Pray For Us game, we have one exciting announcement I want to share before we go into prayer time and dismiss this morning. If you heard from elder team updates from Greg and from Jeff in the last few months, over the last year our elder team has been really working to lay solid foundations for the church, things that will serve us for years and years to come. And one area we've really been focusing on is the music ministry and trying to really see where God is leading us as a church in this. And working. we've been working through the praise team through a study of a theology of corporate worship over the last two and a half months this time. We've been working as an elder team on where God is taking us in this. And for the last almost 12 months now, Justin has been our interim worship leader here at Gateway. If you don't know, he's been doing this not on staff, completely free of charge, no compensation, just doing it to serve a need while we've been working on what the foundations are for us as a church. Now, over this year, it's become clear to us as an elder team and then We did an official interview with Justin this week, but we as an elder team are unanimously recommending to you, the church body, that we hire Justin as Gateway's music minister going forward. With that said, we are a congregational church, so we as elders that we believe this is God's will, we don't have the authority to be able just to put that into place. So we submit that to you, the church body, as our congregational church, so over these next two weeks, to be praying about this and to be seeking the Lord on this. And to give you a heads up on this, two weeks from today, after the worship service ends on July 28th, we'll have a call business meeting where we as a church will vote on the new job description the elder team has written for the position of music minister here, and a second vote on the, our recommendation to call Justin to fill that position. So check your email tomorrow, members. You'll be getting more details from us over that. we well, will send it to you in, the, in, the, in snail mail this week. If you don't do email, you can be checking your, email, or your regular mail by Wednesday or Thursday. You'll have the same stuff that comes over email in a paper copy as well. And over these next two weeks, we ask you to be praying. You know, be praying for God's will to be clear. And if you have any questions, please talk to me. Please talk to any of us on the elder team. That's what these next two weeks are for, a time period for you as a church family to take what we believe is the Lord's will, but to seek it in prayer and come talk to us. If you have questions or concerns, And we'll have a congregational vote in two weeks. With that said, now I want to close us in prayer as we celebrate God's grace in our life. Father, we are so thankful for your grace that you've poured out into undeserving sinners in us. And Lord, we pray this week that you would just keep our mind focused on that grace. The things that we've just sung about would be what our hearts rejoice in and are thinking about. As we long for that day when we will see you face to face. We need to experience a life free of temptation and sin. Lord, until we get to that day, I pray you'll sustain us this week. Sustain us from the enemy's attacks and schemes. Let's find joy in your salvation all this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Parents of EBS kids, pick up your kids at the preschool desk and at the gym, please.